Our summaries this week contain two criminal law cases, one from the Arkansas Supreme Court and one from the Arkansas Court of Appeals. In Harris v. State, 2023, ARC 64, the Arkansas Supreme Court affirmed a conviction of first-degree murder and addressed several issues of general interest, including whether a cell phone video of an original video is admissible. Justice Baker explained, quote, On September 16, 2021, a Mississippi County Circuit Court jury convicted appellate Rakeem Harris of first-degree murder. Harris was sentenced to life plus an additional 204 months imprisonment as a result of sentence enhancements imposed for the use of a firearm in the commission of a felony and for the commission of first-degree murder in the presence of a child. On appeal, Harris presents five points. One, the circuit court's ruling denying Harris's motion for a directed verdict was reversible error. Two, the circuit court erred by admitting the officer's recordings of the surveillance video. Three, the circuit court erroneously submitted an improper jury instruction to the jury. Four, jury misconduct deprived Harris of a fair trial. And five, the state's closing remarks rose to the level of prosecutorial misconduct. We affirm. On March 30, security cameras from Danny's store in Blyville captured Holloman's murder from various angles. The surveillance video footage demonstrated that Harris arrived at Danny's store and parked his car on the left side of the parking lot. Harris and his child went inside the store and returned to the car shortly after. Holloman is then seen entering the store. A few minutes later, Harris's brother, Rinaldre Harris, pulled into the parking spot adjacent to Harris. Rinaldre parked his car, walked over to where Harris was parked, and the two had a brief conversation during which Rinaldre appeared to be monitoring the entrance of the store and adjusting his waistband area. Rinaldre then entered the store, and a confrontation with Holloman ensued immediately inside the front door. Rinaldre brandished a handgun, and the two men engaged in a brief physical altercation inside the store. Holloman ran out the front door as Rinaldre chased him. Rinaldre fired at Holloman, and Holloman returned fire as he retreated across the street. Rinaldre then ran back inside the store. During this time, Harris remained in his parked car. Holloman safely made it across the street, but returned to the store moments later, appearing to retrieve the magazine from his firearm, which had fallen on the store's welcome mat, when Harris stepped out of his car, fired several shots at Holloman, and then immediately got back into his car and drove away. End of quote. Sufficiency of the Evidence The trial court denied defendant's motion for directed verdict, which the court affirmed, as the evidence was sufficient to support the conviction. There were two shooters, but this did not absolve the defendant. Quote, Harris contends that the evidence presented at trial was not sufficient to support the verdict, because it did not prove beyond a reasonable doubt that Harris caused Holloman's death. Harris alleges that Dr. Erickson's testimony that the fatal gunshot entered the left side of Holloman's neck and Detective Stewart's testimony that Harris was standing to the right of Holloman undermines the verdict. The state responds that the surveillance video footage from Danny's store clearly shows Harris aim his firearm toward Holloman and fire several shots, and Holloman immediately collapses to the ground. 
The state further responds that there is sufficient evidence to corroborate the surveillance video footage because there were seven 9mm shell casings found on the ground where Harris was standing in the video. Harris admitted that he used a 9mm firearm, and Britton's testimony established that the bullet fragment found under Holloman's body was in the 38 caliber class, which includes 9mm ammunition. We agree. Here, in the record before us, the surveillance video footage demonstrates that Harris shot Holloman from behind, thereby causing Holloman's death. Dr. Erickson testified that Holloman's official cause of death was multiple gunshot wounds and that the gunshots Holloman sustained came from behind Holloman and traveled both left to right and right to left. The surveillance video footage is consistent with the testimony showing Harris firing at Holloman with Holloman's left side exposed to Harris. Further, Harris's own testimony supports his conviction as he testified that he shot toward Holloman several times using a 9mm firearm. End of quote. A videotape of a videotape original. The convenience store surveillance system recording the shooting. Police used their department-issued cell phones to record the original as they watched it on a store monitor. Later, the original was made available to police. However, the state crime lab was unable to retrieve the images on the original videotape. The second cell phone video evidence was admitted, and the court affirmed. Quote, Generally, to prove the content of a writing, recording, or photograph, the original writing, recording, or photograph is required. Arkansas Rule of Evidence 1002. However, a duplicate is admissible to the same extent as an original unless, one, a genuine question is raised as to the authenticity or continuing effectiveness of the original, or two, in the circumstances it would be unfair to admit the duplicate in lieu of the original. Arkansas Rule of Evidence 1003. Photograph includes videotapes. Arkansas Rule of Evidence 1001-2. A duplicate is a counterpart produced by the same impression as the original or from the same matrix or by means of photography including enlargements and miniatures or by mechanical or electronic re-recording or by chemical reproduction or by other equivalent techniques which accurately reproduce the original. Arkansas Rule of Evidence 1001-4. Here, Captain Ward and Detective Stewart used their BPD-issued cell phones to record the surveillance video footage at Danny's store in real time as they observed the monitors. A duplicate can be a counterpart produced by means of photography or other equivalent techniques that accurately reproduce the original. Therefore, a video recording that captures an original video is a proper duplicate under the Arkansas Rules of Evidence. Further, there is no evidence in the record to suggest that the surveillance video footage had been tampered with. Instead, Anam testified that the surveillance cameras were running properly and he did not witness anyone tampering with the DVR system. He testified further that because he did not know how to obtain the original video from the DVR system, he provided law enforcement with the entire DVR system. However, the original surveillance video footage was unavailable because the crime lab was unable to extract any of the original footage. Both Captain Ward and Detective Stewart testified that the videos accurately depicted the footage 
and neither the videos nor the DVR system had been tampered with. End of quote. Jury Misconduct The defendant argued by a motion for new trial that there was jury misconduct in a discussion about the sentence given following another defendant's conviction in this case, but after a hearing, the trial court concluded there was no violation of Arkansas Rule of Evidence 606B. The rule provides, Upon an inquiry into the validity of a verdict or indictment, a juror may not testify as to any matter or statement occurring during the course of the jury deliberations, but a juror may testify on the questions whether extraneous prejudicial information was improperly brought to the jury's attention or whether any outside influence was improperly brought to bear upon any juror. Looking to the record regarding the alleged juror misconduct, the opinion continued, quote, The testimony from the hearing was as follows. Juror Hawkins testified that one of two possible jurors announced to the jury room that Rinaldre had received a life sentence and asked, how could we give Harris anything less? However, juror Hawkins could not positively identify the juror responsible. Juror Hawkins further testified that although she did not know who gave the juror this information, she heard that the information came from a bailiff. The bailiff, Deputy Jimmy Brooks, testified that he was not approached by any jurors and he did not provide information to any jurors regarding Rinaldre's sentence. Juror Luttrell testified that he heard a comment about Rinaldre's sentence after the jury had already reached a decision, but he did not know who made the comment. Juror Luttrell testified further that he could not recall what the comment was because it wasn't pertinent to this case. Juror Heron testified that someone mentioned Rinaldre's sentence at some point before the jury made its decision, but he did not know who mentioned it or what exactly was said. Juror Heron testified further that the bailiff never approached him with information about Rinaldre's sentence. Juror Perkins, when asked if Rinaldre's sentence came to his attention during trial, responded, Well, no, not really. Juror Perkins testified further that he thought he heard something about Rinaldre during the course of the trial, but did not recall details. Based on the above testimony, the circuit court found that there was no jury misconduct because it appeared that the jurors were referring to testimony about Rinaldre from Harris's trial. Here, given that the testimony was related to commentary made amongst the jurors during formal jury deliberations, the circuit court limited the scope of the post-trial hearing to first determine whether extraneous information had been brought to the jury's attention before making a determination about prejudice. The circuit court ultimately did not reach the issue of prejudice because it made a credibility determination that no extraneous information had been presented to the jury in the first place. Based on our review of the record before us, the circuit court did not clearly err in making a credibility determination upon hearing the testimony of the jurors and the bailiff, and therefore did not abuse its discretion by denying Harris's motion for a new trial. The circuit court considered testimony from witnesses to determine whether juror misconduct had occurred during jury deliberations. The bailiff denied providing information about Rinaldre's sentence to any jurors, and the testimony of the jurors was inconclusive as to when the alleged comment was made, who made the alleged comment, and what information was shared with the jury. Therefore, we affirm the circuit court. End of quote. Jury Instructions 
Defendant challenged the jury instructions, but he failed to make the needed proffer of instructions, which was fatal for appellate review. Alleged prosecutorial misconduct in closing. Quote, Harris asserts that the state attempted to shift the burden of proof by stating that the defense told you a lot of things that they didn't prove to you, they didn't give you evidence of. Harris concedes that he did not make a contemporaneous objection at trial and therefore that this issue is not preserved for our review. However, Harris asserts that the third exception identified in Wicks v. State, 270 ARC 781, requires us to undertake this review. End of quote. While defendant argued that the prosecutor erred in closing, defense counsel made no contemporaneous objection and defendant's arguments for sua sponte trial court intervention also failed. End of decision. In Exeaburr v. State, 2023, ARC App 225, the Arkansas Court of Appeals reversed revocation of two cases of suspended imposition of sentences because defendant was not provided written conditions. The appellate court otherwise affirmed on various points. Judge Abrahsom explained. Failure to object to lack of a timely revocation hearing. Quote, Exeaber's first appellate argument is that his case should have been dismissed because the revocation proceeding was not held within 60 days of his arrest. However, a defendant who does not object to the timeliness of a hearing prior to the expiration of the 60-day period waives the right to later object to the timeliness of the revocation hearing. Here, Exeaber failed to raise the issue of timeliness prior to the expiration of the 60-day period. Thus, he waived any objection to the timeliness of the hearing. Unwritten Terms Exeaber's second appellate point is that the revocation in cases numbers 10, 20-89, and 11, 15-29 were based on failures to comply with the term not included in any written notice of his conditions of suspended sentence. At the revocation hearing, Exeaber's counsel moved to dismiss the petition, arguing that the box on the April 27, 2012 sentencing order indicating whether conditions of disposition or probation are attached is marked no, and there were no remarks in the additional info section of the order. The circuit court denied his motion. A court shall impose conditions on a person who receives a suspended sentence, and those conditions must be in writing. Art Code and Section 54303A and E. The purpose of the statutory requirement is to avoid any misunderstanding. Consequently, a circuit court's revocation cannot be based on conditions that were not communicated in writing to the defendant. Here, there is no evidence in our record that the financial obligations provision in cases numbers 10, 2089, and 11, 1529 were expressly communicated in writing to Exeaber to be a condition of his suspended sentence, and we lack the authority to infer it as such. Accordingly, we hold that the circuit court improperly revoked Exeaber's suspended sentence in cases numbers 10, 2089, and 11, 1529. We reverse and remand for entry of a sentencing order consistent with this opinion. Failure to pay fines. Exeaber's third point on appeal is that there was insufficient evidence to revoke his probation and SIS for failure to pay fines, costs, and fees. 
because we have reversed his revocations in cases numbers 10, 2089, and 11, 15, 29, we need not discuss the sufficiency of the evidence in those cases. Further, we note that Exeaber does not challenge the circuit court's alternative finding that he failed to remain on good behavior in cases numbers 17, 2601, and 17, 3383. Failure to Receive Hearing Notice Exeaber's final appellate point is that his revocations should be dismissed because he did not receive written notice. Specifically, he claims that he was not personally given notice of the second amended petition in cases numbers 17-2601 and 17-3383. A defendant must receive prior written notice of the time and place of the revocation hearing, the purpose of the revocation hearing, and the condition of suspension of probation the defendant is alleged to have violated. The notice does not have to be provided to the defendant personally when it is served on his attorney. Here, the circuit court correctly found that the second amended petition was properly served on defense counsel and that this constituted proper notice. When Exeaber claims that he was not provided notice of the first amended petition for revocation, this is of no matter because the second amended petition gave him notice of all grounds for revocation in all four cases. The circuit court did not err in finding that Exeaber was given notice of the second amended petition through counsel. End of quote. End of decision.